Let's take our Bibles and turn to the book of First Chronicles. We're going to be in First Chronicles chapter 11 this morning. I'm going to be using uh, the New American Standard Version just so everybody's going, why doesn't my Bible say that? I'm going to be using that version most weeks because it really is the most accurate translation. But if you've got something else, that's fine. Bring whatever you have. Um, follow along and read as we study. And I always encourage you to take some notes not because what I'm saying is important, but because it helps you listen better, you retain knowledge longer, and sometimes you can go back during the week and go back through the study and find additional nuggets or do a word study that came out of that. So it really um, helps prompt further study. Now the setting for this passage is right after David became king of Israel. And that was a long and arduous process to get there, but we see in verse 1 that he is finally established among God's people as their ruler, as Saul, excuse me, Samuel has appointed him months before, and you see in verse 1 that it says it was according to the word of the Lord. So now David's heart for the Lord and all the things that he had done and how God had blessed him up to that moment, it's finally realized he's finally now king of Israel, and God is at work in their midst. And we see that David's heart for the Lord was not just uh, for show. It wasn't just so he could gain the position. He wasn't manipulating what God wanted to do. He really did have a heart for the Lord, and we know that he distinguishes the man who had a heart after God. So that's, what, that's why God had wanted him to be the king. And we see, as this goes on in verse 9, that David became greater and greater and you see the next phrase is, because the Lord of hosts was with him. I don't think there's anything greater that, could, that we would want to be said about us than that the Lord of hosts is with us. Don't concentrate on the great part because that's the one we kind of cling to. Well, it became greater and greater and more prominent and well-known. Don't, don't get that part. That's the part that's completely unimportant. The part that's important is he became greater and greater because the Lord of hosts was with him. Now, it's enough, isn't it, that God saves us and indwells us and fills us and guides us. That that would be far more than we could ever imagine. But this connotes something much deeper. This is not just, well, God was with him and blessed him and helped him and all that. This indicates something beyond all prominence and achievement and material power and fame and everything else. This is the fact that the Lord anointed him. And the Lord had his hand on him. And the Lord was working in his life in powerful ways. It wasn't just that the Lord was with him. It was that the Lord was with him. Don't you want that to be true about your life? That every day you walk and you know the Lord is with me today. I mean, he's really got his hand on me. He's really working in my life. I feel anointed by him. I feel led by him. I feel encouraged and strengthened by him. His Holy Spirit's what's guiding me, and I'm yielded to that. I don't know about you, but I want that. I want that for our church, that the Lord would be with us. Not just out there, not just we meet and two or three are gathered, we meet and he's there. We know that verse, right? I want the Lord to be present in this place. And what a prayer that is to pray as a believer. What a prayer that is to pray as a church. Lord, I and we want to be so fully yielded to you 
and dedicated to you and loyal to you and in love with you that you in your mercy and love are with us. And we want it to be obvious that we would be pleasing in your sight even though that probably means that the world's going to stand against us and the world's going to criticize us and the world's going to mock us and the world's not going to understand why we're meeting in a Marriott ballroom on a Sunday morning at 9.30. Why would we do this? What a testimony it is that we love the Lord. And even though, as Jesus said, the world will oppose you and mock you and make fun of you for my name's sake, you keep on persevering. You keep on doing my will because I will be with you. I'll never leave you and never forsake you. Believer this morning, Harbor Rock Church this morning, that, that needs to be our fervent passion. That needs to be our fervent prayer. Not because we want to be known not because we want people to say, well, look what's happening. None of that. It's just because we want the Lord to be with us. And we've given to him that way, and he starts to bless us. He'll begin, begin to do extraordinary work in our lives. That's why I called this message this morning the place of extraordinary blessing. Because that's what we see <coughs> excuse me, in First Chronicles 11. How the Lord often works in very ordinary situations to bring about extraordinary power and sufficiency. This church this morning is a living example of that. Not just because we're meeting today, I'll talk about that later, but because I've personally seen how the Lord has worked in some of your lives over the last two or three months. How during times of change, some of you have developed a much deeper love for the Lord. You've developed a deeper passion for worship. You've developed a greater desire to study His Word. You've been drawn to closer fellowship together. You've willingly thrown yourself into ministry. What a huge step of faith this is. And yet my greater joy is not that we're gathered together this morning. It's that I've watched so many of you just fall in love with the Lord that much more. And listen, that's what the trying of our faith does, right? The trying of our faith makes us perfect and complete because the Lord wants us to know Him and love Him that much more. Isn't it amazing that He uses us to do this work? I mean, come on guys, it's us. Right? We know ourselves. We know our failures. We know our weaknesses. I, I just laugh, and I don't mean that derisively, but I laugh every time I get up to speak to people. Because if you told me 25 years ago, well, this will be what you'll do for your life. You'll stand up in front of people and teach the world. I said, you're crazy. That's not comfortable. And why would God use me? Why would God use Randy? Why would God use the choir? Why would God use you? I mean, we're just average people, right? There's nothing special about us. It's us. And yet, isn't it amazing that God wants to use the ordinary to do the extraordinary? Isn't it amazing that God chooses us and says, you're the one I'm going to save. You're the one I'm going to call. You're the one I'm going to equip. You're the one I'm going to use for my glory to be my servant and my ambassador. And that work is not minor. He literally wants us to be integral in changing the spiritual climate of the world. I mean, this is not just, well, we come to church and then Monday's Monday and Tuesday's Tuesday. We'll buy a Christmas tree sometime. We'll decorate it. Do the whole Christmas thing. New Year. Ah, oh, it's going to be cold. That's not what this is. 
He wants you and me to change the spiritual climate of Racine, Wisconsin. He wants you and me to do His work so that people will get saved, so that people will know the Lord, so that people will love His Word, so that people will grow in Christ, so that people will come to the same understanding that we have, that the Lord is good, the Lord is sufficient, and we have an eternal place with Him in heaven because of Christ. He wants people to know that. And He wants to use us to do it. Come on, you need to smile about that. That's a great job, isn't it? You guys are going... It's a great work we've been called to. The Great Commission. Why would God allow us to do that? Wouldn't it be better if He sent some really cool people and some really great people and some really spiritual people to do that? He says, you're the ones that are great and cool and spiritual. He doesn't actually say that. I'm paraphrasing. You're the ones I want you to grow. You're the ones that I want to be spiritual. You're the ones that I want to love me. So you can do the work. Because I've called you to do it, and I've equipped you to do it, and I've given you my Holy Spirit to do it. So you be the ones. How do we find the joy in that? How do we understand how God works? Let's get to the text. First Chronicle 11, start in verse 10. I've got my little Bible this morning. Hopefully I can read this. Verse 10. Now these are the heads of all the mighty men whom David had, who gave him strong support in his kingdom, together with all Israel, to make him king, according to the word of the Lord concerning Israel. These constitute the list of the mighty men whom David had. Yashubom, the son of the Hakmonite, the chief of the three, 30. He lifted up his spear against 300 whom he killed at one time. After him was Eliezer, the son of Dodo, the Ahoite, who was one of the mighty men. He was with David at Pastamon when the Philistines were gathered together there to battle. And there was a plot of ground full of barley, and the people fled before the Philistines. They took their stand in the midst of the plot and defended it and struck down the Philistines, and the Lord saved them by a great victory. Right at the start, the Lord reminds us that even though David was great in God's sight, he was a man after God's own heart, that the Lord wanted to keep him humble. Every good leader must stay humble, right? Say amen. amen. Every good believer must stay humble. We must not ever allow pride to creep in because pride underlies all sin. And once pride gets its roots, we're in trouble. So God says, yes, you're a great leader. Yes, you're a man after my own heart. But I'm going to keep you humble. And I want to make sure that you recognize that you, there are other people that have great gifts that can serve. So he puts 30 men around him who the Spirit refers to as mighty men. These guys are not sycophants who just say, Oh, David, you're so wonderful and we'll do whatever you want. These, these are strong men in their own right. And they're not trying to supersede him like Absalom did and like Sheba did later on. Instead, they're godly, faithful men who give the king strong support and stand firm for the king and for the Lord. But look at this designation that the Spirit gives them. They're not calling themselves, well, hey, the 30 of us are really great, so we'll call ourselves, I don't know, the Mighty Men. We'll get a little logo and we'll wear it on our clothes and we'll walk around saying, look at us, we're the Mighty Men. Does it say that in the text? Anybody find that in the text? Raise your hand. The Spirit says there were 30 around David who were 
mighty men. It wasn't a term to inflate their ego. They may not have even ever known that they were called that by the Holy Spirit. But they stood out for their character and loyalty and dedication. Now there's an extension, a spiritual principle that extends out of that, which is when we serve our king, if we are loyal, faithful, dedicated, spiritually strong, sensitive to the Lord, that the Lord then will say to us, you, my redeemed, my children, my servants, in my sight are mighty. Men, women, teenagers, children, black, white, red, old, young, widowed, married, single, doesn't matter. You and I, in God's sight, can become mighty men and women of God. But how? How do we live in such a way that God values our lives and we please Him and we bring Him honor and glory? Well, we only have to look at the lives of these three men to get the indication. And because we don't have enough time, we're just going to look at two of them this morning. I think we'll finish the rest next week. Look at the first one in verse 10. We see Yashabam, the son of the Hakmonite. Everybody say Hakmonite. It's a great word, isn't it? Just use it randomly in conversation throughout the week. I was coughing and I hackmanited and I don't know, it was just very unpleasant. I've been hackmaniting for three weeks. There are two distinguishing characteristics of Yashabam's life. And we need to pay attention to them because they're very important. The first one is lesser. He was the chief of the officers. He was someone David could trust because he distinguished himself in his character and abilities. We see that proven by the second fact in that he killed 300 men in battle just using a spear. As I studied that, I thought he's like the Jewish Jackie Chan. You know, he's like 300, just a spear out there. It was funny, I thought. I, I enjoyed it. You guys know who Jackie Chan is, right? See, I think that's a pretty amazing fact. Here's Yashabam in battle, and he's got 300 men that he's taking on, and through the incredible power and ability that the Lord gives him, he defeats them all. Think about just the fatigue factor of that situation. Not just the physical and emotional, but the spiritual attack that he faced. But Yashabam didn't give up. He endured to the end of the battle that the Lord had put him in, and he stuck with it until victory was realized. How many of you this morning are in a battle? You're in a fight right now, and it's mostly spiritual. It may have other components to it. Maybe you're unemployed. Maybe you have health issues. Maybe you're just struggling personally. <coughs> maybe everything's collapsing around you. But you know it's a battle. And right now, you're struggling to endure. You're here this morning, maybe you came in empty. Maybe you came in this morning and thought, I hope something will encourage me from being in the presence of the Lord, the house of the Lord. I don't know, maybe, maybe you just hoped somebody would greet you and hug you and say hi. Maybe you hoped something that we uh, uh, sang about or something that we said this morning will lift your spirits. Because you came in broken this morning, and I don't mean broken in the good way, I mean broken in the bad way. And you're struggling and you're in this battle and you don't know what to do next. 
Or maybe you're serving the Lord in a huge test right now and you're stepping out in faith like we are as a church and you know the enemy is standing against you. Listen, living for the Lord and the work of the Lord is hard and it's challenging. People frustrate us and situations confuse us and we hear accusations and doubts and the enemy's constantly whispering in our ears and he's urging us to stop and not follow the Lord and change directions and do something different. Because if we don't, it's just going to get more difficult. And that temptation is why the Bible says, listen, the work that you're doing, it's a labor. It's a struggle. God never says, oh, you're going to accept Christ and your life's going to be smooth sailing. He says, you will face trials and you'll face difficulties. And you'll have people who oppose you and curse you. And you'll have people who stand against you for my name's sake. And I'm going to test your faith in times when you get cocky or in times when you need refining or times you need to be more like me. And then there's going to be the relationship issues that you're going to face because people don't like what you really... There are going to be a lot of things. Not just because the world's opposed, but because hell hates this. Hell hates this. It's opposed to this. It stands against this. It stands against every single church that says Jesus Christ is Lord. And there are millions of them this morning. And we need to be praying for other churches and praying for other believers and praying for other pastors because hell is standing against us. Spiritual walk is really an insufficient term because the spiritual walk, it's like, I'm going to take a walk this afternoon. I need to because I've eaten way too much. I take a walk, and a walk's just something you do, and then you get done, and you sit down, and you turn on the Food Network and think, I'm going to make that. It's really not a spiritual walk. I know it's a biblical concept, but I want to suggest to you this morning, it's really your spiritual life. It's not just a walk. It is everything that we are, every moment of every day, every single second is to be lived for the Lord. And there are going to be times when you're weary and you're frustrated, just like Yashavam was. Don't you think he was weary as guy 265 comes up and he's looking around and there are 264 that are already dead? And he's like, seriously, another one? How many are back there? Can I look? Can I see the end of the line, please? I just need to know how much more I'm going to do. Weary and frustrated, probably saying to himself, how did I get in the middle of this? Where is the Lord? Why is God not protecting me against attack? But you notice, it, it doesn't say it in the text, but you can read it in there. He never falls into self-pity. He never falls into doubt. That never takes hold in his heart. Instead, he just keeps enduring in the battle. How often do you and I give up right before we're about to experience victory? And we hit that wall and we say, I can't do anymore, Lord. And God says, yes, you can. I will never give you anything more than you can have. But Lord, you don't know. Mm, yeah, I do. Look at the cross. But Lord, I, I just, I'm at the end. No. Endure to the end. Because when you endure to the end, I will give you victory. Every single time. The Lord knows that we have the propensity to bail right before the work is done. That's why the writer of Hebrews says, don't throw away your confidence. Don't give up. Because your confidence has great reward, for you have need of endurance, so you may do the will of the one 
who has sent you. Even when we face opposition, it's our love for the Lord and that's our desire to reach that goal that drives us. And we really don't have an excuse to say, I just don't feel like it. I don't feel like studying. I don't feel like praying. I don't feel like enduring. I don't feel like going through the rest of this trial. I I don't have any answers, so I've got to give up. Listen, I witnessed something really scary Thursday night. And it convinced me that because we have the power of the Holy Spirit in us, we can do anything. How many know that's true? Say amen. I was at, wait for it, Walmart Thursday night. You know, don't you? You know where I'm going. We went there just for kicks. We drove out to Toys R Us just to see how many people were there. Who was in line at Toys R Us? Come on, admit it. Oh, I see a couple hands. That's right. You guys can visit later. Have some lunch. <coughs> and we drove up to Toys R Us at 10.15, just for grins. And when first we drove up, there were people parked at Home Depot. There were people parked at the mall. There were people parked at McDonald's across the street. Oh, there were people parked there. There were people parked here, I think, for Toys R Us. I don't know. But the line was all the way around the building in 10-degree weather. Then we drove over to Best Buy, and there were people camped out. Anybody want to admit that they were camped out by Best Buy? Yeah, I didn't think so. So then we thought, well, let's go to Walmart to see what's going on down there. So we got to Walmart at about, mm, about 10.20. And Walmart, I'm going somewhere with this, so just hang with me. I'm not just doing this for grins. Walmart had all their special items that were going on sale at midnight in the middle of the aisles. It's a brilliant place, by the way, because it really helps you get through. Had them in the middle of the aisles, and they were shrink-wrapped. And they had signs that says, these will not be on sale till midnight. At 10.35, people had their carts waiting by the displays that were shrink-wrapped. Some had already opened them and pulled the item out. And they were waiting, and, and we looked at them. I hope none of it was you, and if it was, well then... You can deal with that with the Lord. But Julia looked at each other and said, these people are going to wait an hour and 25 minutes for that item. And imagine what it's going to be like at midnight. Now, I'm not talking, you know, a 42-inch plasma TV for $18. I would have waited for that. I'm talking a set of cars that usually were $10 that now were $5. And they were going to wait an hour and 25 minutes and endure because everybody's on their phone texting, they were going to endure the pain of standing there, leaning on the thing, fighting as people were trying to go through. And then in an hour and a half, you can only imagine what the frenzy is going to be like when somebody comes along with a box cutter and cuts that thing. It's just going to be, I, I didn't even want to stay. I didn't want to see it. I thought about it. It's a silly illustration. But I thought about that this week. Because God says, I want you to endure to the end. And here's what I'll do. I'll give you my Holy Spirit. I'll give you everything you need for life and godliness. But I want you to endure. And I thought, if I've got that much power in me, and that much presence of God in me, then I can endure, because those people at Walmart are going to wait an hour and a half for a box of cars. Right? You get where I'm going with this, correct? Nod your head if you are with me. If you're not, just look confused. We can endure. We can stick it out to the end. Endurance is the key to the servant of the Lord. You want to be a mighty man, a mighty woman of God, 
then you have to recognize up front that we're going to get tired and discouraged and we may feel like the work isn't worth it. That's why the Holy Spirit says, fix your eyes on Jesus, who for the cost that it cost him, who for the pain that he suffered, endured to the cross for the joy that was set before him. Why? Because Jesus knew, if I do this, then people are going to have eternal victory. So when you're struggling and you're fighting and you're, and you're kind of down, look to Jesus because he went to the cross to do that. That's what Yashabam did. He didn't know Jesus, but he knew the grace of God. And he says, I'm going to keep fighting. And with every man I defeat, the opposition gets smaller and smaller until it's just me. And at the end, I can say the battle was the Lord's. He did it. Listen, I think there are two primary threats, threats to spiritual endurance in our generation. The first is instant access and instant gratification. Have anything you want. I mean, we get frustrated, right, when our cell doesn't click fast enough. Or when we're on the Internet and, and the screen doesn't refresh. We're like, come on already. I'm sorry, it's been a half a second since the page loaded. Sitting in line at McDonald's. Come on, I want my frappe. Come on, move. That's me, by the way. I don't drink frappe, but I get frustrated. Instant gratification. Instant access. So we say the word endure, and people are like, what are you talking about? And the other problem we have is that there is such a barrage of information and choices and commitments that it makes us too busy to persevere. No wonder we don't see more of God's power. We're too preoccupied to abide in his presence. One of the things I've loved over the last month, and many of you haven't been there, is we've met in the supper room on Thursday night, and we've just visited and prayed, and there's been no hurry. We haven't said, well, we've got four more minutes to pray. And we'd get done, and people would stick around for an hour and a half just talking. That needs to be what we have each time here. We're not in a hurry. If you want to be in and out 60 minutes, this is not the place for you. We're going to abide in the presence of the Lord. We're going to worship Him. We're going to study His Word. And it'll take as long as it takes. It's not going to take six hours. It's not even going to take two hours. But we're not going to go, hmm, we've got to be done. Because there's nothing better, right? There's nothing better we're doing today. It's nothing more important. We don't need to go to Walmart this afternoon. You may, but it's not more important than this. Look at the second guy. Let's try to draw to a conclusion. We've got Elazar. <coughs> Elazar's name means God has helped. And that accurately describes his life. If there's one thing we need to learn from Elazar's life, it's that often when the work seems insignificant, that's when the Lord's going to work in the most extraordinary way. Look at verses 13 and 14. The Philistines came to fight the Israelites. That's nothing new. They were in a perpetual battle. And that was especially tough because the Philistines were very ruthless people. That may explain why when the Philistines came, all the people fled. And now we just seen Elazar alone by himself. He's the only one who didn't run. He stands firm and alone. And he's going to defend that ground for the Lord against God's enemies. Listen, sometimes you are going to feel alone. Sometimes you're going to be in the middle of something that may not seem worth defending. But it is those simple, common, ordinary, everyday, seemingly unimportant battles that we must persevere in and must expect God to meet us in. 
Because if we give up in the ordinary, that's going to signal a spiritual resignation that the devil's going to exploit. I've been saved 30, oh, I've lost track, saved when I was nine. I've been saved 37 and a half years. And I've learned in 37 and a half years that it's not waiting around for the extraordinary so then we can follow the Lord. How many of you know this principle? That it's serving the Lord in the ordinary that God delights in. Don't sit around and say, well, I can't wait till God parts the Red Sea for me or writes in the wall. No, He wants you to be faithful tomorrow. As you raise your kids, as you teach a class, as you go to work, as you drive, as you go to the mall, whatever you're doing, He wants you to be faithful to Him and stand for Him in that. And when we serve Him in the ordinary, then He'll do the extraordinary. That's why it's important to notice that the Spirit, and I love this passage, the Spirit gives the detail that it was a field of barley. You know that's not an insignificant detail, right? The Holy Spirit doesn't just say it was a field of barley just because He feels like it. He says it's a field of barley because he has it in point. That's significant because of the relative lack of worth of a field of barley. We've got a slide up here that will show you what a barley field looks like. It's probably the situation in First Chronicles 11, probably very similar to that scene. I know you go, well, what's the point? It's just a field of barley. Exactly. That's not some great city with a, with a wall around it that needs to be defended. It's not Jerusalem, it's not Bethlehem, it's not Jericho, it's not the Red Sea. It's just a field of barley. So you say, well, what's the point? Thank you, George. Barley was the grain of the poor. You just made porridge out of it. It was just something you ground down to make barley cake. They gave it to the oxen, they gave it to the livestock. It was relatively worthless. So Elazar stands in this plot of a field of barley... And it's insignificant. There had to be far more valuable places to defend. And don't you think he said to himself at this point, at some point, what am I doing in this field of barley? The Philistines are here. Everybody's run. I'm about to put my life on the line. And I'm probably going to die in this barley field. I could run with everybody else or I could surrender and be safe. But those aren't the actions of a mighty man and mighty woman of God. The voice of compromise that we hear can be very strong and subtle and persuasive and the enemy constantly wants us to think what you're doing for the Lord is pointless. Oh, I know you hear Rhodes say that tomorrow you've got to be faithful in the little things and that's a nice little platitude, but come on, what you're doing doesn't matter. God's not honoring you like you thought He would. God hasn't given you the attention that you should have. You've heard those things before. He wants to make it all seem insignificant. And even in the middle of a great victory, He can try to get us to buy into the claim that it just doesn't matter. You've heard me talk about it before. I always go back to Elijah. He has the great victory on Mount Carmel. Then Jezebel puts a hit on his life and he goes and hides in a cave and feels depressed and sorry for himself and says, God, just kill me. You know what? We have those moments. Maybe they're not that extreme. But we have those moments where we just say, I don't feel like doing this anymore. Let me tell you, those are our barley fields. 
and the barley fields are worth defending. Because as you look at the text, the point of 1 Chronicles 11 is the ordinary is often the place where the Lord chooses to do his most extraordinary work. The ordinary is often the place where the Lord chooses to do his most extraordinary blessing. It's a very important spiritual principle because there are going to be times in our lives when it seems like the Lord is calling us to work in and defend a field that just doesn't seem to have much value. Maybe it's an area of ministry, holding a baby, or greeting people, or working behind the scenes to tear down equipment, or designing a bulletin, or making calls to follow up people. While we were singing, I walked down and went to the nursery in the two children's rooms, and I just watched. We saw the kids holding hands, walking through the hallway, going to their bathroom. It was so cute. And the teachers were smiling. They don't get to be in here this morning. And then I went back and I watched, and they were giving the little snacks, and the kids are sitting around, and they're telling the stories about the 12 stones. And I thought, nobody's noticing that this morning. And yet, what an important work of the Lord. It's crucial to the cause of Christ, because imagine if two-year-olds were wandering around this room right now. Would you be able to study, or would you be distracted? Somebody had to do that work. Or maybe it's a situation or a place the Lord has you each day where you feel like you're not making much of a difference or the people around you are critical of your faith. Or maybe they, even, maybe they give you a hard time and oppose you. Or, you're, or maybe you're not making headway with somebody you're talking to about the Lord. Whatever the case may be, those are the barley fields. But they're places of extreme significance because that's where God says, stand for me. Let me show you one more thing and we're going to draw it a close. David, we see him in this passage in verse 12. David understood the principle of being faithful to God in the ordinary. And it's interesting here that as Elazar was out there by himself, David came out and fought with him. I've always pictured them standing back to back. As the Philistines come and oppose there are David and Elazar standing out there in the barley field. And I asked myself, why would the king go out there and defend a barley field? Well, it's interesting because that particular place held great significance to David. It was a place where he had stood alone for the Lord. Don't turn, just write it down. 1 Samuel 17.1 In 1 Samuel 17.1 it was at Pastamon where the Philistines had camped and they had a big giant who walked out each day. His name was Goliath. And he shouted out curses and defied the name of the Lord and challenged any one of the Jews to come and fight him in an all-or-nothing battle. Whoever won, the other army had to serve the one. Pastamon, the exact same place where David had taken a stand for the Lord, where he had experienced a miraculous victory. So I have to imagine, I'm going to insert in some text in here, I have to imagine that as El Elzar and David are standing there, that at some point David said to El Elzar, listen, I know this place. The Lord gave a great victory here before, and believe me, the odds were just as ridiculous. But I couldn't stand that somebody wanted to defy and defame the name of my Lord. 
So laws are whack, whack, whack. Let me tell you something. I picked up some stones and I ran toward that giant. And I said, you're not going to defy my Lord. And let me tell you, it seemed like a minor thing. But I swung that slingshot and I threw that rock and God directed that stone right to his forehead and he fell down and we overtook the Philistines. Interesting that we're back in the same place, isn't it? And I know this barley field seems like something not very significant, but let me tell you, God will give the victory if we take a stand for him. I know because he's already done it once in this place. So let's fight. Let's take a stand. And Elazar does. In 2 Samuel, the parallel passage says that he fought so diligently that his hand clung to the sword. You could not get it out of his hand. And as he got tired, he gripped it tighter and tighter because he was doing the work of the Lord. And look at the last line of verse 14. It says, the Lord saved them by a great victory. <coughs> Do you know that every one of our spiritual battles is made that much easier because the Lord is present with us to help us. Every one of our spiritual battles is made easier because the King of Kings is present with us. You never go into battle alone. And as we stand with him, he looks and says, I'm standing with you. I'm going to be with you. And as you labor together as a body of believers and you're unashamed to declare my name, I'm going to give you confidence and strength and I'm going to defend you. Listen, be a mighty man and mighty woman of God doesn't require always being engaged in battle for important real estate so everybody will notice. Do you think Elazar had any kind of idea that 3,000 years later we'd be in Marriott and Racine talking about him? Do you think as he stood in that barley field he's going, I can't wait till three centuries from now when Harborak Tabernacle talks about me? All he was doing was doing the work of the Lord. But he was humble and faithful and determined to live for the Lord even in the middle of that barley field. There is never a great victory without a battle. And many of us have learned those lessons of faith, things that we only know now because we've gone through the struggle. Extraordinary victories usually come on the front lines of ordinary battles when we know that only the Lord could have done this. Of course, after the battle's won, you see it in the text, the people all come rushing back to grab the spoils. They had done nothing to deserve it. And they're all preoccupied with, what do we get? Well, we get, we get material and we get blessing. They're like poachers who don't want to do the work, but they want to enjoy the victory. But how many of us know that they could not have possibly enjoyed the victory as much as David and El Azar did? Because they had been in the middle of the battle. And for them, it wasn't about the material reward. It was about knowing that God was sufficient and knowing that his power is always there and knowing that when we honor his name, his work will be done. And when we do that, the Lord defends us and supplies what we need and allows us to share in the victory. Let me close with this. Just seven and a half weeks ago, 
53 days, I counted on my calendar last night. 53 days ago, we had the first discussion about the fact that the Lord might be calling us to continue a work in this city and to birth a new church. That number stood out to me because it was 50 days from the resurrection to Pentecost when the first church was birthed. It was 52 days when Nehemiah and the people rebuilt Jerusalem. Now, I am not in any way, in any stretch, comparing the formation of Harbor Rock Tabernacle to the, the work of Pentecost or the rebuilding of Jerusalem. Other than to remind us, listen now, to be absolutely amazed by the short time frame the Lord has used to put this together. And remember, it has nothing to do with us. Nothing. I had no idea when I met with three men on October 6th that a church would be started, that a church would call me, let alone that we would have our first Sunday on November 28th. But God's hand has been all in the planning. What a contrast. I was looking on the internet weeks ago about how to start a church. I don't, I don't know how to start a church. <laughs> and I found one document. It was very thorough. And it gave an 18-month plan for starting a church. It had 300 bullets. I got depressed. 18 months. Here's your strategy on how to prepare and launch a church. Instead, in just seven and a half weeks, we saw the Lord open all the doors. And I want to tell you this morning, only the Lord could have done this. And I want you to say that. Only the Lord could have done this. Say it again louder. Only the Lord could have done this. All we did, all we did, listen now, I mean this with all my heart. All we did was seek him and say, Lord, we will follow as you lead. And if you want to stop it, we prayed this many times, throw up a big stop sign. <coughs> we don't want to mistake this at all. If you want to do this, then you do the work, and we're going to humble ourselves and wait on you. And listen, that doesn't stop just because this is the first Sunday. We need to continue to humble ourselves and pray and seek his face. And we must never lose the perspective that this ministry and any ministry is not about us. It's about him. It is not about what we do. It is about standing for him, defending him, living for him, serving in his strength, proclaiming his name, studying his word, and loving him more deeply every day. It's about standing out in the barley field in the middle of the ordinary and saying, if you are with us, we will fight. And we will reach people for Christ and we will do the work even though we'll be opposed because it's your work, Lord. It's not ours. Brothers and sisters, I want to be a mighty man of God. Don't you want to be mighty men and women of God? What a great calling. Listen, that'll change the way you go about your week. Not just tomorrow morning, oh, another Monday. you got to be kidding me. Another week. No. Mighty man. I'm going to be a mighty man of God today. I'm going to be a mighty woman of God today. Harbor Rock Tabernacle is going to be a mighty church for the Lord. Every day, the Lord's going to put us in a past famine. 
and we're going to stand firm in that barley field. Will you stand for him? If you will, then grip that sword and stand firm and know that he's going to be with you. Let's pray together. Lord, we're absolutely humbled again by who you are and what you have done. Lord, yes, about this church, but so much more so about your redemption and your mercy and your love which never ends and your indwelling and your sufficiency and the fact that you don't just put us out in the middle of a field and say, do your best. Like King David coming on alongside Elazar, you stand and fight with us. It's your battle. It's your work. And it's so that people would know you and love you and surrender their lives to you. Lord, we all know the challenges that we face. You know our moments of discouragement and doubt. But Father, I pray for every single person in this room this morning that you would fill us fresh with your Holy Spirit, that we would lay aside all the sin that so easily encumbers us. And Lord, that we would stand as your children, your servants, your mighty men and women, who will be faithful to you, whether it's knocking down the walls of Jericho or standing in a barley field at Pastamon. Father, we ask your hand of blessing on our lives. We ask your hand of blessing on this church. Lord, solely for the fact that people would know and love you more deeply every single day. Stir up that fire within us. Give us a great love and passion for you every single day. Lord, we love you so much. It's just remarkable who you are and what you've done. We love you. We love you so much. Bless us and guide us in the days ahead. And we will give you all the praise, all the glory, all the honor, because you deserve it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.